Before I begin this morning, I want to say two things. First, I want to thank you all for the support you give uh, for us in Sycamore. It's a humbling thing to be a preacher, I think, in any place. But it's particularly humbling when so much of your financial support comes from a variety of Christians, a variety of churches, people who work in their daily lives and take their time and energy and then take the money they've accumulated to provide for their families, for their own congregations, and then decide to send some of that to other preachers around the world. So thank you. Thank you for being a part of that. Thank you for supporting us. It's humbling to be in that position. The other thing I want to thank everyone who has expressed support for our recent news. For those who may not know, uh, Heidi is expecting. We recently found out that our baby has trisomy 18. Um, but there's lots of things that are involved in that. The long story short, though, is most likely the baby will pass before full term. And so we are full of sorrow because of that. But it's made me think about what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, where he says, we do not mourn as those who have no hope. It's not that we do not mourn, but our mourning is very different than those who do not have the hope of the gospel and the hope of Jesus. So thank you for your kind words, for your texts, for your emails, for your calls, uh, for your concern and all the things you have done, for the prayers you have offered and the prayers you will offer. So thank you very much. Anytime I stand up to teach and I stand up to share something from God's word, I am burdened with this question of what does the audience need? What do those who are going to be there need to hear? What do they need to know? What is it that is going to help them in their walk with God, help them resist Satan, help them understand who God is, help them understand what their purpose is? And I feel that burden even more when I'm asked to do a series of lessons, such as a gospel meeting. Not that you have to always relate to all the lessons together, but if we're going to make people listen to me over and over and over again, I want them to at least get something from it. And of all the things that I have listened to and heard, this series has been one of the most impactful series to me. It has changed the way I see myself as a Christian. It's changed the way I under, understand my role as a member of a congregation. And it has helped me understand and answer certain questions that I've had a long time. For instance, when I was growing up, I had a question. How, how do we understand the difference between institutional and non-institutional? What is the distinction in that biblically? How, how should we view people who are a part of denominations biblically? How should we think about those people who are believers in the same God, but don't apply scripture the same way? What does it mean to be a Christian? This series touches on all of those things, and I hope it will be insightful for you as it has been for me, as I've sought to understand God's teachings on his church and what it is, what it isn't, and uh, apply that biblically. Before we get into that, we have to understand what we mean by the word church. Church is actually an English term. Most of you all know that the Bible is, pro is not written in English. It was originally written in Hebrew, mostly in the Old Testament, and Greek and the New Testament. But church is an English term. And so what I decided to do is first... We're going to throw up several uh, definitions that come from Merriam-Webster's Dictionary online. And to yourself, I want you to think about what is the biblical term 
church? How does the Bible and the New Testament use the idea of church and see which of these definitions might fit that? So the first one on the list is it's a building for public and especially Christian worship. In fact, according to Merriam-Webster, this is the earliest usage of the word church. It initially just referred to the place that people would meet and worship. So if you've ever had a hard time confusing the building with the way the Bible uses it, don't feel too bad because that's where this word comes from. Uh, It used to just mean the building. But as all languages, language and words change over time. The way we use them change over time. And so it also can refer to the clergy or official uh, official dumb of religious body. So you talk about the church as the people who run the church. Um, uh, You also have, let's see if it works, there we go. Um, this I have multiple parts, but is often capitalized, but a body or organization of religious believers. So you might refer to all, the whole body of Christians as in the one church was gathered uh, from, together from all the ages, referencing a guy named J.H. Newman. Or it might refer to a denomination, such as the Presbyterian Church. You might refer to a congregation, uh, such as in Acts 14, you point elders in all of them, uh, in all the churches. It may refer to a divine worship, a public divine worship, um, or the clerical profession. So when you think about those, those definitions, and to yourself, think about, are any of these, or are some of these, true to the way the New Testament uses the word church? And now, let's start looking at some examples. So in, um, uh, uh, as I mentioned, the Old Testament is written primarily in Hebrew, But the Greek word ekklesia, which you translate into the word church, is made up of two parts. The word ek, which means out of or from, and kaleo, which means to call. Now, many people looked at that and said, well, that makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense that the church is the ekklesia. We're called out from the world. We're called out from sin. And all those parallels are true. But it's not necessarily um, the main reason that this word is translated into the word church. And I want to start in the Old Testament. Anyone who has ever read the Old Testament realizes you're never going to see the word church in the Old Testament. Um, and you're not going to see the word ecclesia in the Old Testament Hebrew. But around 250 BC, the Jews were speaking a lot of Greek as opposed to Hebrew or Aramaic. And so they began translating the Old Testament into Greek. And that version is called the Septuagint version. And the word ecclesia shows up a lot in that one, actually 70 times in the Old Testament. And of all those 70 times, most of them refer to the whole congregation of Israel. It refers to the nation of Israel, such as in Deuteronomy 9. Um, you go to Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses is reminding the people of where they were before they enter the promised land, what God has done for them, how he's given them the law. Deuteronomy means second law, so they're reviewing the law. So in Deuteronomy 9, picking up in verse 10, he's talking to them about following God's law, remaining true to God. And he says, The Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written by the finger of God. On them were all the words which the Lord had spoken with you at the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the church. Now, your version probably doesn't say that. Your version says on the day of the assembly or on the day of the congregation. But in the Septuagint version, the Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible, that is the word ekklesia, that we translate into the word church in the New Testament. So here it refers to the assembly at Mount Sinai where Israel makes the first covenant with God. They become a nation of God. He gets the Ten Commandments. And so it's used to refer to them as a whole. Jump over to chapter 18 of Deuteronomy. You'll see the same kind of usage. Deuteronomy 18, pick up in verse 16. 
where he says, This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God and Horeb on the day of the assembly, the day of the church, the day of the ecclesia, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. In this chapter, he's reminding them why God's going to use prophets. Because Israel gets this moment with God. God speaks directly to them. That's something that we don't always recognize. When God gives the Ten Commandments the first time, he actually literally speaks it in the hearing of all the people. And that's why they turn around and say, God, Moses, you go talk to God. We can't listen. If he keeps talking to us, we are going to die. And Moses reminded them about that event, explaining, okay, God's going to use prophets from here on to give you messages. But again, here's our word, ecclesia, or assembly, or church. But you also have multiple ways the word is used in the New Testament. So it's not, it's not always referred to, it's not always translated as the word church. For instance, in Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, let me turn over there real quick. Stephen is giving his sermon that gets him stoned. And he's talking about the history of Israel. In many ways, Acts 7 is a great summary of Israel's history. It covers most of the highlights in Israel's history. And in verse 38, he is talking to, the, uh, to, to his audience, and he says, This is the one, referring to Moses, who is in the church in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Now, of course, your version probably says in the day of the assembly or the day of the congregation, but that is our word ecclesia, again referring to the congregation of Israel. But I think the section of text is most informative when it comes to how do we understand the word ecclesia from the Greek? What is the range of meaning? Which meaning, what are the different ways we can understand a term is Acts 19. Acts 19 in this text, Paul has been in Ephesus for about three years. And lots of people are responding to the gospel. Lots of people are forsaking the pagan idolatry to worship the one true God. And this upsets some of the silversmiths who make a lot of money by making silver shrines to the goddess Artemis. They realize that their financial well-being is in danger if lots of people forsake the pagan worship. They also realize their reputation is in danger. So Demetrius kind of spearheads this resistance to Paul in Acts 19. He stirs up the silversmiths, and they in turn stir up the rest of the Ephesians who are loyal to Artemis. There was a famous temple to Artemis in Ephesus. It's one of the great seven wonders of the ancient world. And so the Ephesians are very proud of, the, of their temple. They're very proud of their goddess. And so they're able to be stirred up when they think their goddess, their reputation, their fame is in danger. So pick up with me in verse 28. When they, referring to the Ephesians, heard this and were filled with rage, they began to cry out saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Now, we're not told exactly how many people were there, but if we presume that this theater is mostly filled, the theater could hold around 50,000 people. This is a large group of people. This is a large mob that has been stirred up. So pick them, verse 20 and 30. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. And also some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. 
So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the church was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Pause right there. Again, that's not what your version says. Your version says something like the congregation or the assembly or maybe the mob. But that is our Greek word in verse 32, ekklesia, the called out. It's just a group of people, in this case, that actually wants to kill Paul. Continue reading with me in verse 33. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward. And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians! After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of, God, of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and the proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful church, the lawful assembly, the lawful ecclesia. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real reason for it. In this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he, dis, uh, this, he dismissed the church, the assembly, the ecclesia. So what we see in this text is that three times our word ecclesia, which we usually translate into the word church in English, is used in one case of a mob that wants to kill Paul. And the second case is used of a court system. He says the, the courts are in session. You can go to the proconsuls. If you want anything to be done, it's going to be done in the lawful assembly, the lawful church. And at the very end, the word is used just to refer to the mob that is now less riotous, um, that he's dismissing the group. He's dismissing the assembly. And what we should take away from all of these different passages, and we can look at more passages to illustrate this point, but I think we've done that enough, is that the word ecclesia simply refers to a group of people. By itself, without a context, all it means is a group of people. And that group may be organized like a court system, or it may be unorganized like a mob that doesn't know why they've gathered. It may refer to a large group like the congregation of Israel. Um, it may refer to a smaller group like a section of a city. It's not an innately religious word. And that's important because our word church is innately religious. When we use the word church, we're not going to refer to the church as the group of people gathered at a restaurant to eat food who don't even know each other. They just all happen to be at the same restaurant at the same time. But in Greek, in the, with the word ekklesia, it could be referred in that way. It could be used in that way because it just means a group of people. I don't know really why we don't just translate it as the assembly all the time because it's probably the best English word to use, the most consistent English word to use, but in many cases we translate into the English word church. And to make things more confusing, there are two usages, two ways the New Testament uses the phrase the church of God or the church of Christ, or the group of God, the group of Christ. And this is one of the reasons that I was so confused growing up, trying to piece all of this together. How should we understand this term and this phrase? So, go, uh, so a lot of these I will throw up on the screen so you don't have to turn there. 
Um, Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So this is one of the usages. We're going to look at several passages and uh, kind of classify some of the details we see in this way this term is used. Um, We're going to highlight some information we learn from these passages. So Galatians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches or the assemblies or the groups of Galatia. So what are some things we learn about this usage? Well, there's multiple congregations or multiple groups Paul's writing to in this letter. And he calls them brethren. So whoever is part of these groups are supposed to be brethren. He notes that he's an apostle, so that's supposed to matter to these groups. That should affect these groups in some way. And he mentions Jesus. He mentions God the Father. He raises from the dead. So all those are important ideas to these groups he's writing to. In 1 Corinthians 1, 2, he says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ, Jesus, saints by calling, with all and who every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So in this case, he writes to a single church, a single assembly in the city of Corinth. But these are people who are supposed to be sanctified in Christ. These are people who are supposed to be saints by calling, who are supposed to call on the name of the Lord, who are supposed to recognize Jesus as their Lord. In Acts chapter 14, verse 23, referencing the definition that Webster had, Luke tells us when they, talking about Paul and Barnabas on their first journey, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so they come back to the cities that they had taught the gospel, come back to the congregations that taught the gospel, Um, So you have several different churches here, and they're all getting elders in each of them, and they're commending them to the Lord. They're saying, the Lord is who you follow, the Lord is who you serve, this is your star that you follow, God in heaven. One more passage, just to illustrate how sometimes when you don't see the word church or the word ecclesia, um, in this case we can still understand that that's what's being talked about. Based on the first couple of passages we looked at there, Paul writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. He doesn't use the word ecclesia here. He doesn't use the word that we translate into, into the word church. But is Paul writing to a church in Philippi? Yes, because he's writing to saints. And there are overseers and there are deacons. All those other passages we looked at indicate he's writing to an assembly, a group that's in Philippi that's going to meet this usage. So if we consider these passages, and again, there's more. Uh, this, you're going to, this is going to be very true of all these lessons. Because of the little bit of the time crunch we will experience in this meeting, um, I will have to spend less time on some things than I might otherwise But this usage we often call the local assembly or the local church. You never see that phrase, local church or local assembly in the Bible. It's never used. But any time that this word is used in this way, uh, Paul or Peter or someone's writing to a group that is in a particular place at a particular time that assembles on a regular basis. And these local groups are supposed to be made up of saints. They're supposed to be made up of brethren who acknowledge Jesus as Lord, um, who have elders and deacons. And so one way the New Testament uses this phrase, church of God or church of Christ, 
And again, we could translate that as assembly of God, a group of God, or people of God. It is in this local sense of some saints in a particular place, particular time, who have gathered to do kingdom work. We haven't really shown that quite yet, but as we go through these lessons, you'll see that. But there's another usage of the term. So I put Galatians 1 up there so you remember Paul writes the churches of Galatia. And now what you consider a very, very confusing passage if you know Galatians 1, 1 and 2. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Paul is talking about Jesus and Jesus' exaltation after his resurrection, ascension to heaven. And Jesus, uh, Paul says, and he, God the Father, put all things in subjection under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now that by itself it might not confuse you. But in the same book, in chapter 4, verse 4, right after Paul says in verse 3 that he urges the brethren in Ephesus to be diligent, to be urgent, to take care, to preserve the unity of the Spirit. That's Ephesians 4, 3. The oneness of the Spirit. He then begins listing seven ones. The first thing in the list is there is one body and one spirit, just you're called one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all, I think is the other preposition he uses. So the oneness of the spirit are these seven ones. What's the first one he says? The one body. In Ephesians, what is the one body? It is the church. Now tell me, how does Paul write to the churches of Galatia, and yet in Ephesians, Paul says there is one body. One means not plural, by definition. And what's going on here is he's using the term church of God or church of Christ, the assembly, the group, in a separate sense. Not an unrelated sense, but a different sense. This is one of the reasons why there's so much confusion out in the religious world about what the church is, is this distinction is not always recognized. And so there is a usage that refers to the local groups, but there's a usage that also refers to this one body sense. But what is this one body? Let's look at a couple other passages in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, Paul says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Now in the context, he is primarily focused on the Jews and Gentiles being put into this one body. Those are the two groups he's talking about here. But I just want to notice the emphasis on this one body and what's happening to this one body. It's being made one, for, uh, uh, is one of the points he makes. You're having two being brought into one, but the answer is this one body is then going to be reconciled to God. He hits back on this point in 3.6 where he says, to be specific, talking about the mystery of Christ, to be specific, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the, through the gospel. So he stresses that, okay, these Gentiles who are on the outside are now fellows with the Jews. 
They share in the, as heirs, they share as members of that one body, they share as partakers of the promise. Let me give this illustration. So if the church, this one body, um, is the body of Christ, would it seem a little strange um, if Jesus had one head but multiple bodies? You ever seen a person with one head but multiple bodies? If you did, you'd think that's kind of strange. Something was wrong. Something was awry. Something didn't go correctly in the development of that. And that seems to be part of what Paul is implying here. There's not multiple bodies and the one head. There's one body in this usage. We still haven't quite defined what this usage is yet. One other side point, we'll come back to this idea later in the lessons. But when a part of your body doesn't do what your head says, what do you call that? We say that part of your body is sick. When your hand doesn't obey your brain, we say something is wrong. When your foot doesn't act the way you tell it to, we say something is wrong. When some part of your body does not obey the head, we say you're sick. So if there's some part of Christ's body that's not obeying its head, there's something wrong. We'll come back to that later. Hebrews 12, 23, uh, 22 and 23. And this begins to, I think, help us figure out this one body usage of the church of God or church of Christ. Where the Hebrew writer says, but you have come to Mount Zion, contrasting uh, Mount Sinai, uh, the fire and the smoke and how it terrified them all, reminding them of the fear they felt um, when God spoke to them. He says, that's not where you come from. You haven't come to the mountain of fear. You've come to the mountain of comfort and solace. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn. Now, look what's said about this church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, the spirit, to the spirits of righteous made perfect. So when he says the church of the firstborn, why does he phrase it that way, church of the firstborn? Well, in Philippians and in Colossians and a couple other places, Jesus is often called the firstborn from the dead. He's the first person to live, die, be resurrected to the immortal resurrection that God promises. Every other person in the Bible who has ever been resurrected died again except Jesus. So Jesus is the firstborn to this new life, this new resurrection. And this assembly, this group, this church is the church of the firstborn. And where are they enrolled? They're enrolled in heaven. That tally by us. This is referring to this one body. You should. One more passage where I think makes it clear how we should think about this phrase is in 1 Corinthians 12, 20, uh, 12 and 13. Now, in the context, Paul is really dealing with miraculous gifts, spiritual gifts, and how they fit into God's plan. But he makes this point in 12 and 13 where he says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Again, notice how many ones are in that passage. Paul's stressing the unity here, stressing the oneness here. And if I was teaching this to a denominational group, I, I couldn't just make this point, but I'm not doing that. So I can ask this question. What is the purpose of baptism? What happens in baptism? 
God washes away the sins. He buries the old man and you raise the new man. What does Paul say happens in that? That when the spirit is doing this supernatural work, the spiritual work of cleansing the soul, you're being put into the one body. You're being added to that church, which is the body of Christ. Acts 2.47 uses it this way. God added daily those who were being saved. Another way to think about this term is that if I am a Christian, if I am a saint, if I've been put into the one body of Christ, I'm part of a group that no one else can join because God has to add them. God controls this. It's an, it is enrolled in heaven, not here. Now, God welcomes anyone who wants to be part of that. But it's a spirit who baptizes us into the one body. One more passage, 27 and 28. Now, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church. I won't read the rest of the passage because I really just want you to notice how he uses the one body language and the church phrase interchangeable. He's talking about the same idea we saw in Ephesians. But notice what he says. You are individually members of the one body. The reason this matters is there's a common idea out there that the way you get to God is through the church. That's what Paul says here. He says, we are individuals of this one body. You're individually a member. You don't go through some other person or some other organization or some other administration to get to God, to get to Jesus. You're individually responsible for that. So if we're going to define the way this usage here, this term here, this one body is simply the group of those who are saved. Those who are in Christ. Those who have been baptized by the Spirit into the one body. So sometimes we say that um, Christ's one true church is going to be saved. And that is true. But it's a bit of a tautology. A tautology is a statement that's just true by definition. It doesn't give you new information. Because the one body usage just simply refers to the group of the saved. That's what it means. When we say God's group, God's assembly, in this sense, it just is those who are enrolled in heaven. Those who are part of the body. And so when we think back to those definitions, you actually have both of these ideas here. This idea of having a local group, a local assembly, a local congregation, as well as this collection of all the saved across time. That's also something interesting about the universal church. It's not bound by time and history. Paul is part of the universal church. Peter is part of the universal church. Because it's just the group of the saved in Christ. But Paul, the apostle, is not a member here. Peter is the apostle that is a member here. In fact, the next lesson that we'll do during the main worship hour will be looking at the relationship between these two and the distinction between these two. Before we end this lesson, I want to talk about why understanding this matters. So a common way many people in the denomination see this idea of the one body, the universal church, is this. That the universal church is made up of all the different Christian denominations. 
It's made up of the Catholic denomination, made up of the Baptist denomination, made of the Methodists and the Pentecostals and the Presbyterians. And you combine all of those and you get the one body, the one universal church. Is that what the Bible teaches? Well, first off, remember what the word ecclesia means. It's a group of people, not a group of groups. And then you think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, where he says you are individually members of the body of Christ. I mean, it's one of those passages that kind of stuns me sometimes, because Paul actually took the time to say, you're not a, a member of the body of Christ because you're part of the, a group. You're part of the body of Christ because you're an individual member of that. But some people look at this, well, that, that, that can't be the case. There's too, uh, there's too much distinction between those. Even those who don't recognize the way the, what the word ecclesia means or recognize Paul's statement in, in 1 Corinthians, they say there's too much distinction for them to all really make up the one body. So another common idea about the way the universal church and the local church relate is this. That the universal church is made up of all the faithful local congregations of some, some particular denomination. So all the faithful local Baptist churches, or all the faithful local Catholic churches, or all the faithful local Presbyterian churches make up the universal church. But the same things we just said apply. God's group, God's one body, is not a group of groups. It's a group of individuals, 1 Corinthians 12. This, so this doesn't work. But do you know the way I used to think about this? It's very similar to this, that I realized was the wrong way to think about it. Was I used to think about the universal church being all the faithful local churches of Christ. But it's not. The universal church, the one body of the saved, simply is the group of the saved made up of individuals, not groups. Now, there is a relation between the local and the universal church. But Paul makes it very clear you're individual members of the body. The word itself implies that. So why does this matter? What effect does this have on us and our understanding? I think everyone in this room would say they are not denominational. In fact, many of you might say you're anti-denominational. And as I was just Paul is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, where he's rebuking people for calling themselves after other people, other teachers' names. But if I see the universal church as all the faithful local churches of Christ, I am thinking denominationally. Because a denomination is a group of groups in some organized fashion. Maybe it's loosely organized. Maybe it is, has a hierarchy like the Catholic Church. But if that's the way I see it, I'm not thinking about it biblically. I'm heading towards not denominational thinking. This is one of the distinctions I think is true of non-institutional congregations versus institutional congregations. The institutional congregations think about it in, the, in this way. The universal church is all the faithful local churches of Christ. And as we'll see tonight, we'll look at the purpose of the universal church. That then impacts how you operate, the things you do or you don't do. So this matters because it affects whether I see God's universal body denominationally or not. It also matters because it directly impacts how salvation works. 
The universal church is the group of the saved. All the passages we looked at indicate that, teach that, show that. That's just what it is. It is the group of the saved. And so, if the universal church is a group of groups, it affects how salvation works. Because one of the questions you have to ask is, am, am I in the right local church? That is a question you should be asking. And we'll get to that in other lessons. But here's the point I'm trying to get at. Is my salvation dependent on the actions of others? What if there is no faithful local church I can be a part of? If the universal church is a group of groups and I have to be a part of the right group to go through that group to get to God, and there's no right group to be a part of, I can't be saved. If this is true, what I'm saying is this thinking is not the way to think about it biblically. Does the local church you're part of matter? Yes, it does. But I'm trying to be biblical. It also impacts this idea. So if the universal church, the one body of the saved, is made of a group of groups, it can lead people into the thinking that as long as you're part of the right group, it doesn't really matter what you do. You just got to be part of the right group. How you live is kind of irrelevant. They were, that's how the Jews were, were, had gotten into thinking in Jesus' day. I'm a Jew. I'm good. I'm part of the right group. That's all that matters. If the one body of the saved just is a group of groups, then it really is, well, as long as I'm part of the right group, I'm good. That's not how the Bible teaches salvation. Now, I realize I may have generated a lot of questions. In fact, I expect that I've made many of you feel very uncomfortable today. Because I'm challenging you to rethink the way you've probably thought. I know what that's like because I've had to go through that. But our goal is to be biblical in what we do, biblical in what we teach, biblical in how we think about God's group in the local sense and in the universal sense. And I hope the next lesson is going to clear up some of your questions. Clear up some of that uncomfortableness. But I am glad to talk about any of these things, discuss any of these things, study any of these things. Because my goal is to be biblical in all of this. So if I, if I sum up what we've looked at, the word ecclesia is not innately religious. It's not innately an organized group. It just means a group of people in some sense. The context tells you how it's being used. And so the Bible uses God's group or God's church or God's assembly in two ways. This local group, such as the church in Corinth or the churches in Galatia, and the one body of the saved. And in the next lesson, we will spend more time understanding how do those, those two relate to each other. How are they different from each other? And then how should I think about God's one body and his local groups? Thank you for your attention. If you have questions, I'll be glad to discuss them um, uh, now or uh, later. Thank you.